Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. From 1861 to 1865, the country was split asunder in a devastating civil war between the northern and southern states. The causes of the war are still debated. The question of whether the American experiment in democracy could survive in a country where the sovereignty of the individual was of paramount importance was at stake. There is no debate over the level of devastation that occurred. A recent computation states that approximately 750,000 soldiers died from wounds and disease during the American Civil War. Another 50,000 civilians also died. Tennessee was in the center of it all. A number of its citizens were important players in the political debates leading to secession in 1861. Tennessee citizens fought for both sides during the conflict. With the exception of Virginia, more battles were fought in Tennessee than any other state. The American Civil War will be the topic of today's discussion. We will explore the root causes of the war, discuss Tennessee's role in the conflict, and the war's outcomes and legacy. I'm joined in the studio today by my two co-hosts, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, Professor of History at Columbia State Community College, and Joanne McClellan, County Historian and President of the African American Heritage Society. Good morning, Barry and Joanne. Good morning. Good morning. The American Civil War ended 155 years ago, yet in many ways, people are still debating the war and its causes. Barry, what in your opinion was the greatest cause of the war? Slavery. As simple as that. It's as simple as that. But it's still debated. Uh, a lot of people are questioning, you know, is that the root cause or is there more to it than that? Let, let's flesh that out a little bit. What, what's going on in the country uh, leading up to 1861? Well, when you go all the way back to the Declaration of Independence and the uh, delegates at the Second Continental Congress, the big debate from the very beginning between the North and South had to do with slavery. It was controversial. It was debated at the uh, in the uh, drafting of the Declaration of Independence, the approval of the Declaration of Independence. It was a topic that could very well have broken up the Constitutional Convention 11 years later. It was a very touchy topic for the South, and the only reason that this republic got off the ground was that northern delegates in Philadelphia in both cases were willing to compromise with the South and essentially let the South have what it wanted. Now, over the years, and there were several instances where people like even Thomas Jefferson had to pause and give thought to whether or not this nation could continue to survive half free and half slave. When Thomas Jefferson heard about the debate over bringing Missouri into the Union in 1819-1820, it creates this big controversy because Missouri wants to come in as a slave state and that's going to upset that balance between free and slave states that existed at that point. 
And Thomas Jefferson wrote in his journal that the news came to me like a fire bell in the night. We see over and over again in the decades prior to the Civil War this fundamental disagreement concerning slavery. And it seems like in the decades before the Civil War, the South Southern leaders get more and more paranoid about it and get more and more sensitive and touchy about it. And then in the aftermath of the Mexican War, we've acquired all this new territory in the Southwest, and the South wants that territory. They want more slave territory. The North sees that territory as uh, an opportunity for, for free men to go make their way in uh, in this country. They don't want that territory to become like the South, this this closed society where most of the land and most of the wealth is dominated by an oligarchy of large plantation owners. They want this to be a place where where white men, black men, all Americans have an equal opportunity. And it's really it's the territory that we acquire in the aftermath of the the Mexican War that accelerates this debate between the North and the South about slavery. And as we know, in the, in the 1850s, it's one unfortunate event after the other that eventually brings us to that crisis. And we're going to get into that a little bit in just a minute. Joanne, sort of the same question to you. Slavery versus states' rights. How do you... How do you? I agree with Barry. I think it was primarily slavery, although there were people talking about uh, government control and infrastructure issues and taxes and tariffs. But I think it was primarily slavery. I agree. I, I don't think there's any way around it. States' rights, as far as geography is concerned in our country, is absolutely tied to to the issue of slavery. The slavery, as Barry alluded, had been part of the American experience from its very beginnings. Uh, a lot of folks uh, through the 1840s and 1850s, uh, as the country expanded outward, continued to talk about the Founding Fathers and their intentions. So many of the Founding Fathers had been slave owners. So as they write the words, all men created equal, they did that with the thought process in their mind that slavery existed and it continued to long after that. Um, I think James K. Polk, and this is just my opinion, James K. Polk isn't in the conversation of slavery really as much as he ought to be in terms of how, how it would culminate in a civil war. Uh, I think his policies, his, his expansionist policies directly lead to, to civil war. You can follow a very clear direct line from his thought process to the splitting apart of the country. Now, he didn't see it that way. If you read in his diaries, he, he was sort of trying to keep slavery out of the conversation as much as he possibly could. Um, but he's responsible more than any other for the expansion of the country. He brings in 800,000 square miles of territory into the possession of the United States. And it's that thing alone that really brings the idea of slavery to the forefront. Southern slaveholders are interested in expanding slavery uh, as the West goes uh, farther towards the Pacific Ocean, so too should slavery. And of course, that the, the counterpart of that is the Northern idea that slavery should not uh, expand westward. So I, I think Polk 
uh, should be more more in that conversation. So following Polk's administration, the next decade marked stronger and stronger stronger arguments around the expansion of slavery into the new territories. The historical debate rages on even today. During the present administration, former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly stirred up controversy when he stated, quote, the lack of an ability to compromise led to the Civil War, which really stirred up historians who reminded the public and uh, uh, General Kelly that there was a great deal of compromise attempted uh, prior to the Civil War. Barry, remind our listeners, what are some of those compromise attempts? Well, in uh, immediately after the uh, Mexican War, when the first efforts to try to deal with this territory, there were a lot of ideas, and one of those ideas that that really came to the forefront, Lewis Cass is considered to be the 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 father of this solution, is popular sovereignty. Let the people decide. Let the people that move into the territories decide for themselves whether or not slavery will exist there through their territorial legislatures. Of course, the problem with popular sovereignty is that if Southerners are going to be moving into the territory with their slaves, the slaves are people that don't get to make that decision. Uh, The other problem with popular sovereignty, as we will see come up uh, in the aftermath of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 is what happens when two opposing groups flood into a newly opened territory like Kansas and cannot agree amongst themselves as to whether or not slavery will exist and create two competing governments. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that there was a civil war in Kansas that raged for five years before Fort Sumter. Right, right. Yeah, the idea of popular sovereignty theoretically is a good one, but the actual practicality of that didn't work out very well for the people living uh, in Kansas. Um, so the Compromise of 1850 is an important one. Henry Clay is sort of the architect of, of that, but that gives rise to the idea of popular sovereignty. Um, between... Uh, 1850 and 1860, uh, compromise issues come and go. Uh, Between December 20th of 1860 and May 20th of 1861, 10 states secede from the Union. I know there were a number of uh, peace uh, conferences that happened around the country. One happened in Nashville, I know, uh, as well. Uh, They were trying right up to the 11th hour to stave off war. Uh, Tennessean Robert Hatton, who is a unionist from Tennessee, he would later change sides, uh, was a member of Congress in 1860. And as uh, things looked like they were heading towards war, he summed up the feelings of many uh, when he wrote this. Uh, He left Congress that morning and he wrote, We are getting along badly with our work of compromise. Badly. We will break, I apprehend, without anything being done. God will hold some men to a fearful responsibility. My heart is sick. And I think that sums up a lot of of what's happening in the country and sort of the feeling that people were kind of exhausted trying to figure out a compromise that by 1860 just was not possible anymore. Uh, So 10 states secede between December 20th, 1860 and May 20th of 1861. Tennessee was a holdout. 
but finally seceded from the Union on June 8, 1861. But it was a lengthy process. What was the process, Barry, by which Tennessee seceded from the Union? Well, Tennessee had had not had never been a hotbed for secession. Other states like South Carolina had been talking about it. You really never heard that in Tennessee seriously uh, before 1860, when uh, when the presidential election of 1860 resulted in the election of Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was elected president essentially without a single vote from the South, uh, certainly there were Tennesseans that came to the conclusion that the South had become irrelevant in this federal government if the North can elect a president without a single Southern vote. That's certainly what Governor Isham Harris thought. Now, Isham Harris, uh, I I like to call Isham Harris the Tennessee governor most likely to secede because he's a West Tennessee lawyer and planner, uh, plantation owner, and he was well ahead of the rest of the state in that. And it's Governor Harris that convinces the General Assembly to call for a referendum, a statewide referendum on whether or not to hold a convention to consider secession. And the second part of that, if the convention is approved, they were also to elect delegates to that convention. This happens in February of 1861. In the vote, and it's interesting because Middle Tennessee is going to uh, to hold the balance here. East Tennessee is overwhelmingly opposed to secession, is overwhelmingly opposed to the convention. West Tennessee is in favor of secession and the convention. They cancel each other out, and it's really Middle Tennessee that's going to make that decision. And Middle Tennessee votes against the convention, votes to remain in the Union, Essentially, uh, it's about, turns out the vote about 55 to 45 percent, but it's even more lopsided than that. In, in those uh, areas that elected delegates to a possible convention, more than 75 percent of the delegates for unionists. So Tennessee was solidly for remaining in the union. It wasn't until the attack on Fort Sumter and President Lincoln's call to arms in the aftermath of that attack, that's when Tennessee suddenly had to make a decision. Do we want to remain in this union if we are going to be expected to fight against our southern neighbors? And that, that, changes, uh, that changes the whole dynamic. There will be a second referendum at Governor Harris's insistence in June, and in this referendum, we get the same result in East Tennessee and in West Tennessee. But in Middle Tennessee, we have an about-face. This time, Middle Tennessee joins West Tennessee in calling for uh, secession. And it's, it's tragic because it didn't have to happen, but Tennessee becomes the last state to join the Confederacy. This is a great place to stop. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about what secession meant to Tennessee. Uh, Let's take a break. We'll be right back on History's Hook. 
if we if you want to talk more about that Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the American Civil War and its impact on Tennessee. What did secession mean for people living in Tennessee in 1861? Uh, Barry, what was the reaction to war initially? Well, the reaction to war in in Tennessee, it's, it's the same as the reaction when we went to war with Mexico. It's the same as the reaction with the... Uh, with the War of 1812, Tennessee has always been ready and willing to participate. I, I, I often say that Tennessee has never met a war it didn't like, but it's just a matter there has there has always been that. I guess that's why we're well. I know that's why we're the Tennessee Volunteers. There's always been that sense in Tennessee that in a conflict you can count on the young men of Tennessee to rise to the occasion. And uh, so the war started with a great deal of fervor in this state as it did across the South. Um, Joanne, what did it mean to the enslaved that were here in 1860, 1861? Well, they started to leave their, the plantations. They moved uh, to, to the Union camps. Um, they became what was called contraband. Uh, there were many contraband camps that were established, like all over Tennessee. The first one was uh, in Grand Junction, Tennessee, which to me was sort of interesting because it was such a small town, only 300 people, but it had the railroads. It was like a cross-section of two different railroads that were in Grand Junction, and that was probably important to, um, to the defense. So... so for the enslaved, they see an opportunity as the Union Army starts marching southward and into Tennessee. They see it as an opportunity to escape uh, enslavement and, and find freedom. Uh, there was also a, a f number of free people of color in Middle Tennessee. Do we have any sense what their reaction to war was? Um, not, not really. I haven't found very much about uh, you know what they were doing. I, uh, bef during the war, or but after the war, they were very active in the Reconstruction. But uh, what I thought was interesting is that some of the women who were wives of the plantation owners, they had to assume a different role because their husbands and sons were leaving, going to war, so they had to assume the responsibility of the plantations. Uh, and when some of the slaves left, you know, they were without uh, help. So I thought that was interesting. Some statistics. In 1860, there were a total of 488,070 free blacks living in the United States, about 10% of the entire black population. Of those, 226,152 lived in the North, 261,918 lived in the South. So more free people of color living in the South, choosing to live in the South rather than the North. What induced free people of color to remain in slaveholding states, do you think? That's an interesting question. I'm not really sure. Um, comfort level, maybe. Um, uh, not really sure why they would want to stay in uh, slaveholding states. It was surprising to me as well. By 1860, Tennessee's 275,719 slaves represented just under 25% of the total population. So Tennessee sides with the Confederacy. What were the main inducements a young man had to fight in a war from Tennessee. Barry, what, what 
What would make a young man want to fight? Well, for duty and honor, we talked about that in another in another show. Um, but for Tennesseans, there there's this just this tradition for for young men in Tennessee. Their their grandfathers fought in the War of eighteen twelve. Their fathers fought in the Mexican War. Now there's a war. Tennessee is engaged. Probably, probably a major incentive besides patriotism for your for your state is that Tennessee is the northernmost Confederate state west of the Appalachian Mountains. If the Union Army is going to invade the Deep South and the West, they've got to come through Tennessee. So Tennessee finds itself in the position of defending itself against an invasion. And young men in Tennessee are going to rally. To defend their homes. To defend their homes, to defend hearth and home. Right. The whole idea of honor is an interesting one as well. There were those who were concerned or I hate to say the word frightened, but I think a lot of people are frightened in in wartime. And uh, so there were a number of women's organizations, women's patriotic organizations throughout Tennessee who were making bandages. They were making flags. One story I came across was interesting. It had to do with Sarah Polk, the former first lady living in Nashville, who is a member of an organization who found out who the skulkers were and sent them women's corsets to remind them that they had a duty to go fight for their for their hearth and home. Uh, so there were a, a number of inducements, I think, for young men, whether whether they were self-inflicted or whether they came from outside sources. The Battle of Fort Donelson was uh, the first really important battle that took place that affected Middle Tennessee. The Union Army under Ulysses Grant captured a large portion of the Confederate Army under Generals Floyd, then General Pillow when Floyd left, and then when General Pillow left and escaped, General Buckner. That allowed the Union Army to enter Nashville unopposed. Panicked Nashvillians fled by the hundreds southward, streaming through Franklin, Columbia, and places further south. The banks uh, and other institutions packed up their records and money and fled southward as the refugees also went south. To some of those that remained, uh, it was a great adventure for many of them. Uh, One of my favorite stories, and uh, this takes place in Columbia, but I expect it took place in in any number of towns across the south. When the Union Army uh, traveled through Tennessee heading south, they were stopped at the Duck River. The townspeople had burned the bridge, so the Union Army had to rebuild it. So they were trapped on the north side looking into town. 16-year-old Nelson Rainey was uh, working in a store in the downtown area, and his friend, uh, uh, Lawson White, came and said, the Yankees are on the north side of the river, let's go take a look. And Nelson Rainey wrote down uh, this wonderful description of how war came to Middle Tennessee, came to his town. He wrote... I got permission, and he and I ran about half a mile to the bluff above the town. On the other side, we saw a skirmish line of bluecoats about one quarter of a mile from us. White jumped on a log and yelled at them in a language not very nice, calling them ugly names. One of those fellows got behind a stump, took aim, and shot at us. That was the first shot fired at Columbia, the first angry shot I ever heard. I dodged down behind a log. White ran away from there. I suppose he did, for I saw him no more for a week. 
I had not been behind my log long when an unorganized band of town boys, fifty strong, came galloping up, and from behind boulders and for an hour, wasted many shots from shotguns and hunting rifles. And I think that's a great description, right, for a young person, a 16-year-old boy. What greater adventure is he going to have in, in his life? So he's, he's taking on the Army all by himself. Now, uh, an archives, of course, is filled with papers that tell lots of these kinds of stories. We hit the jackpot when we found a letter from an Ohio soldier who happened to be across the river that day. He was with the Union Army, stopped at the Duck River, and he wrote to his brother uh, saying this. He said, Dear brother, we are 35 miles south of Nashville. I expect that we would have been in Alabama before this time. The rebels burn a bridge that was across Duck River. We have got it about done now. The rebels kept shooting at our men. General Nelson told them that if they didn't quit, he would shell their town. They kept on firing, so he hauled up one of the 32-pounders and let loose on them, which made them cease and offer to help make the bridge. I think that we will be apt to leave here the first of next week. We made a pretty good haul on the rebels since we have been here. We got a large amount of meat, I think 6,000 pounds, and a large amount of dry goods that was hid away. So wonderful sort of opposing views uh, in the same event uh, as war comes, uh, comes south. As more and more of Tennessee was occupied by Union forces, efforts followed right behind to reinstate federal control. The loudest and most influential voice for Union in the state was Andrew Johnson. Uh, Barry, who was Andrew Johnson, and what role did he play early in the war? Well, Andrew Johnson was a uh, former representative, Democratic representative uh, from East Tennessee. He served a couple of terms as governor of Tennessee in the in the mid eighteen fifties. He was a U.S. senator from Tennessee at the time that the Civil War broke out. He is the one U.S. senator from a Confederate state that refused to follow his state out of the Union and remained uh, in Congress. And he became a celebrity in the North and uh, as because of that. Abraham Lincoln certainly saw something in Andrew Johnson. One of the interesting things is that at following Lincoln's inauguration, uh, Whig leader... Uh, John Bell, who had supported Lincoln, of course, Bell had run run for election as the president of the constitutional, uh, as the nominee of the Constitutional Union Party. But after Lincoln's election, Bell had become one of his big supporters in Tennessee, urging Tennesseans to give him a chance. And Bell and Johnson are both at the inauguration. It was assumed that Abraham Lincoln would tab John Bell as the man who would dispense federal patronage on his behalf in Tennessee. But that's not what happened. Abraham Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson, and uh, a Democrat. When it came time to appoint a military governor of Nashville, or for Tennessee, when most of Tennessee had come under Union occupation, Abraham Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson for that job. Lincoln probably wasn't aware of how people, especially in Middle and West Tennessee, felt about Andrew Johnson. They saw Andrew Johnson as a traitor. And Johnson arrived in Nashville, and he, he made a, a speech, a rather 
intemperate speech in which he condemns secession and the Confederate leaders, but he also appealed to these essentially, you poor, illiterate, dumb masses out there who had no idea what was going on and you were just led into this. It wasn't your fault. And and he offered to give every one of them a pardon if you just sign an oath of allegiance. And he was quite surprised that a lot of people didn't take him up on that. <laughs> it's an interesting story. I want to continue with Andrew Johnson uh, in just a minute. We're going to take our second break. We'll continue the story in about three minutes. You're listening to History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the American Civil War, its causes, and its outcomes. Barry, before the break, you were talking about Andrew Johnson's role uh, in the Civil War, and in Tennessee especially. He's the only senator, U.S. senator, to remain in his seat from the South, and it immediately gives him some some cachet. Uh, and he's appointed by President Lincoln to be military governor of Tennessee. How, how does he take on that role? Well, he, he comes in with a lot of bluster and, and with the idea that uh, that the masses out there, those that, as he sees it, have been have been also oppressed by the plantation owners and the Confederate leaders, that they're all going to flock to him as as their leader. And it didn't work out the way he thought. He he lashes back. He uh, he he puts Nashville city councilman in jail. He he closes newspapers. He closes the Baptist and Methodist publishing houses. He throws uh, ministers in jail for their pro-Confederate sermons, and he becomes known as Johnson the Tyrant. Uh, He came to Columbia in 1862 to give a speech. They estimated that somewhere between 10,000 and 12,000 people came to hear the speech, which is pretty astounding given the size of the community then, but it was noted that townspeople were conspicuously absent. They had actually, the Republican Party had brought in a large number of those folks from Nashville and and other parts uh, of the state to come and hear that speech. So, or or it's simply propaganda uh, trying to show in northern newspapers that there was a pretty solid unionist sentiment in in the South. Um, Joanne, as the Union Army comes through, uh, you've already alluded a little bit that uh, African Americans, the formerly enslaved, are uh, doing a couple of different things. They're flocking to the Union Army. Is there any mechanism in place by the federal government to care for these newly freed people? Um, where do they go? Well, early on, no. Um, they just decided to sort of emancipate themselves because uh, they wanted to get away from the plantations. They wanted um uh, to be free, so they just went behind the Union lines. Uh, there was a u- Union uh, general, I think, that decided that uh, he they were supposed to be returned back to uh, the plantation owners, but he decided that he wasn't going to do that because he thought if he returned the slaves back to the plantation owners, they would only just help the Confederacy. So he decided to keep them, and shortly after that, they did the Confiscation Act one and two, and they decided to 
treat them as property, as contraband that was owned by the um, union government. And then that's when they put the um, a department in place to help manage the people behind the union lines. And there ended up being um, uh, 20,000 male concubines uh, behind the union lines. And these were the people that were recruited to go into the um, um, recruited for the United States Colored Troops. Um, they um, basically had, they basically turned some of the contraband camps into recruitment centers uh, like in Gallatin and Nashville and Fort Pickering. And this is where some of the United States Colored Troops were enlisted. And they come in large numbers. Um, I think with the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamations in September of 1862, African Americans, both free and runaway slaves came forward to volunteer for the Union cause in substantial numbers. Beginning in October of that year, approximately 180,000 African Americans comprising 163 units served in the United States Army, 18,000 more in the Navy. African Americans constituted about 10% of the entire Union Army by the end of the war, and nearly 40,000 died over the course of the, <coughs> over the, course of the war. Um, how much were soldiers paid during the war? Do either of you know? Early on, <laughs> not much. Uh, I read um, somewhere that the laborers were paid like 40 cents, and then they moved it up to like a dollar. As a soldier, uh, the African Americans were paid probably three or four dollars less than the white soldiers. I think it was like uh, they were paid ten dollars, the white soldiers were paid like thirteen dollars. I think that's right. Uh, until uh, 1864, I think, when they, they remedied that. Um, here, here's a controversial question, Joanne, uh, that's come up a number of times over the last couple of years. Were there black Confederate soldiers? That's very interesting. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I specifically researched Tennessee to see if I could find any black soldiers, uh, and I could not find any. You know, the Confederate Army did not allow enlistment of black soldiers until like one or two months before the war ended. So the people who say that they saw black soldiers, I, I'm thinking that they were indentured servants. I know I read a story that um, one of our, his, well, one of our historians did here in Columbia and they ta he, she talked about um, a soldier that was uh, with a guy up that came out of the uh, theater community, but I think he was a body servant, not a, un not a Confederate Army soldier. Right. I, I, think, I think that facet of it is pretty well documented. A lot of Southern soldiers went with enslaved people alongside to, to assist them in a servant's capacity, uh, but not as combatants. There's a recent book by uh, a man named Kevin Levin, uh, writing in a book, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Uh, and he writes, slaves and free blacks were present in the Confederate lines as hand servants and manual laborers. On March 13, 1865, the Confederate Congress passed a law to allow black men to serve in combat roles with the provision, quote, that nothing in this act shall be construed to authorize a change in the relation which said slaves shall bear toward their owners, i.e. the black soldiers would still be slaves. It's not much of an inducement to fight. Uh, <laughs> when you look at it from that perspective. So on March 14th, 1865, the mm -hmm. Confederate military issued General Orders Number 14, 
which provided for the raising of black combat regiments, but there is no official military documentation that indicates these orders were carried out or that any black soldiers were ever properly enlisted in the Confederate Army. There are a few photographs of blacks in Confederate uniforms, uh, but uh, a lot of them floating around the Internet especially, but uh, a number of these appear to be hoaxes. So yeah. uh, one-third of the soldiers who fought in the Union Army were immigrants, which is fascinating to mm-hmm. me as well, and nearly one in ten was African-American. For those non-combatant African-Americans, Joanne, what, if any, assistance did the federal government put in place to care for them uh, in their new state of freedom? Well, they provided uh, housing and uh, food and shelter uh, for them. Uh, they also hired them to work in some capacity for the uh, for the Union Army. The, uh, the contraband slaves built most of the Union infrastructure in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. Uh, Fort Negley was built by the uh, the Union contraband, the mm-hmm. the uh, es- escaped slaves, uh, bridges, roads. That the whole infrastructure the Union used in Middle Tennessee was was built by the slaves. The war on the home front was devastating in occupied Tennessee. Both armies subsisted on the land that they passed through, and citizens were deprived of their goods, sometimes lawfully and peacefully, other times not. Uh, Diarist Nimrod Porter had this to say about living on the home front. He wrote, The last year, 1863, is passed off, leaving many thousands of aching hearts mourning the loss of their dear friends. Fathers, brothers, sons, and husbands, many that have been slain upon the bloody battlefields, many that have been wounded, carried off the field, and have died, many that have sickened and died in prisons, hospitals, and camps. History cannot record the great destruction of life that has been occasioned by this most unnatural and wicked war. What dreadful sufferings has been produced by this unnecessary war? No one living ever will be able to give a full picture of its consequences and distresses. The widows are seen every day begging to get back their property that has been forced from them by the ruthless bands of soldiery, soldiery, leaving them and their little ones in a state of suffering. Midnight robberies on the highways are the order of the day in every part of the country. Committed in every neighborhood and every day committed, soldiers belonging to both armies and robbers that don't belong to any army, trafficking, trading, unlawfuling, hiring Negroes to steal mules and horses and carry them off to those robbing traders appears to be the order of the day. They have and are draining the country of all of the mules and leaving us without any chance to live. Oh, how long will divine providence permit such a state of affairs to continue? So I, I think that's pretty pretty dire, uh, but I think accurate. There are a number of first-person accounts that are sort of saying that same thing. By 1863 and certainly into 1864, the people are war-weary. Uh, their property is being taken. They're having a hard time subsisting. In November of 1865, the Confederate Army chased the Union Army out of Columbia on their way to the battlefields of Franklin and Nashville. Following the overwhelming Union victories there, the Confederates retreated back through the area, never to be seen again. Union occupation resumed permanently after that. By the beginning of 1865, the war was effectively over in Tennessee, even though the war didn't officially end until late April. Every person living in Middle Tennessee and West Tennessee saw their lives completely changed. The slavery-driven economy was no more and the enslaved had new challenges found in freedom. Joanne, how did the formerly enslaved begin the new chapters of their lives? Well, the 
the Freeman Bureau was established, so they were ready to learn to read and write, to establish their businesses, to uh, establish churches, um, and uh, get married. You know, they were not legally married, so they were just anxious to start a life without uh, someone controlling every move. Um, so they're starting businesses. Do you see African-American businesses, say, on courthouse squares in the South? Yeah. In fact, even before the Civil War, we had uh, businesses on the, um, an African-American business on the courthouse square. And even during Reconstruction, we had African-American businesses on the square and around, um, around the public square here in Columbia. How many were moving away from the South? Do we have a sense of the percentage of of African-Americans that move out of the South? You know, uh, quite a few moved because um, a lot of of African-Americans, you know, during the uh, the war, they somehow or the other moved from the country into, like, Nashville, and then they proceeded uh, north. But there were a lot of African Americans that did move from the south into into the north into some of the larger cities, but primarily, I think I saw them moving from the rural areas into the city areas. Like a lot of the country contraband camps were around larger cities like Memphis and Nashville. So these um, contraband camps became the foundation for African American communities in those cities. Barry, what happened to the economy in the South following the war? Well, it, it was wrecked, and the eventually, eventually the sharecropping system, the the former well, the the landowners, the former plantation owners who still own the land because the land redistrib- redistribution that some hoped would happen in the South did not. So the former plantation owners still own the land. They would eventually replace the slave system with the sharecropping system to uh, restore at least the agricultural, the staple crop type agricultural economy before. Now, now Tennessee was, was fortunate in that the state of Tennessee had never been totally dependent upon staple crops. Tennessee had a more diversified uh, agriculture. In fact, Tennessee uh, was kind of a, a breadbasket for the states in the Deep South that devoted so much of their uh, their arable land to, to cotton and staple crops. And it was Tennessee that provided uh, meat and, and corn and, and grains. And so Tennessee's economy is not going to be uh, quite as devastated as, as in the Deep South. But it's going to take a time. It's going to take time for the economy to uh, to build back up. About how long would you say before the economy was back healthy and strong? I would say probably twenty years, twenty five years. Let, let's talk about politics for a second. So, what happens politically following the war? Uh, the Republican Party is victorious on a national scale. How does that translate to Tennessee? Well, in, in 1870, the Democrats win back control in Tennessee. The Democrats win uh, the governorship back with John C. Brown. Uh, they win back control of the, of the General Assembly. And for the, next, uh, for the next several decades, 
Tennessee will be dominated by the Democratic Party. Now, from time to time, the Democrats will squabble amongst themselves. In the, in the late 19th century, they, they argued about the debt and the infrastructure and, and whether or not uh, bonds, uh, bonds should be paid off. And, and it opened the door for a Republican to come in briefly as governor, but that didn't last long. Uh, the next big schism within the Democratic Party was over prohibition in the early 20th century, and, and the Democrats squabbled over that to the point that they opened the door for a, a Republican governor for a couple of terms. But for the most part, the Democrats are going to remain in control in Tennessee uh, because they're in control in, in Middle and West Tennessee. Uh, the uh, You'll see the Republican Party... Uh, very strong in East Tennessee, but as long as the Democrats in Middle and West Tennessee are able to work together, they will control the state. Joanne, can you speak to Reconstruction just a little bit, just just briefly? So the, the war is over. We talk about formerly enslaved or now sort of becoming ensconced in, in the community. Uh, there's sort of assimilation between the white and black communities with businesses, you know, intermixing right on public squares throughout throughout the state. How, how does that change in the 1870s and forward? The Reconstruction change? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, <laughs> Reconstruction uh, sort of slows down. If you uh, look at 1865, that's when many, especially here in Murray County, many uh, schools were established. Uh, people were, uh, people were um, getting married. They were starting their families. They were building churches. They were like probably 10 or 15 churches that were established uh, during that reconstruction period here in Murray County. But then after a while with the uh, onset of um, some of the Supreme Court decisions, the Plessy uh, versus Ferguson, then things started to change. The Jim Crow laws were implemented, black codes were implemented. Uh, and um, during the reconstruction period, we had a Many uh, men elected to the Tennessee General Assembly uh, after, like, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. No one was elected probably for another 80 years. So things begin to change after that point. So where it, it appears that where initially things seem to work well together, there's a pretty dramatic change, and segregation comes into being and continues well into the 20th century. So there's exactly. A, um, uh, fascinating how how things play out Barry why why is the Civil War still such a hot topic today you know I, I grew up here in Middle Tennessee and uh, I think the the fact that we had the in the latter part of the 19th century the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, are going to embark on a on, on a crusade to kind of redeem the confederacy and redeem the 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 soldiers the the generals in particular the the confederate leadership and it's it's in the late 19th early 20th century that we see all these confederate monuments going up and this this myth of the of the noble lost cause comes into into being and for decades in Tennessee, in the South, and in Tennessee, uh, there was this kind of rewriting of history at, to 
to maintain that the war wasn't about slavery, that it was about states' rights and economic issues, and that the Confederacy was not simply fighting to to keep men in bondage, that there was more to it than that. And uh, so that the, the, the Confederates and even the Confederate leaders could be looked back upon as, as heroes. And we've seen the impact of that in Middle Tennessee and all over the South. I think that's right. It, it, and it's still a, a big and really an important issue for a lot of people today. The state legislature is debating currently whether a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest should be in the state capitol. Year after year, people protest that symbol. Uh, and so it's still a relevant a relevant argument today. It's fascinating that events that took place 155 years ago are still in the forefront of people's mind today. Well, thank you both for your expertise in talking about the American Civil War. We'll end the show with this quote from the late author and historian Shelby Foote. He wrote, The Civil War defined us as what we are, and it opened us to being what we became, good and bad things. It was at the crossroads of our being, and it was a hell of a crossroads. Thank you to our sponsor, Servpro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Marty Verhoff, our engineer, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, and Joanne McClellan, we'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.